Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am JVL sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who is on vacation. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. I am joined today by Ed Kilgore, who is uh, today a columnist for New York Magazine, but he has been a longtime Democratic political strategist and a longtime writer. I've been reading you, Ed, for I feels like 20 years. It probably isn't. It's probably closer to 15 because you were actually still working in practical politics, I think, when I got to D.C. Uh, you did time for Sam Nunn. Do I have that right? And then you were at the DLC. Sam Nunn, uh, well, three Georgia governors. I, I sort of had three careers working for elected officials in Georgia, three governors plus, yeah, Sam Nunn. Then went up the Yellow Brick Road to Washington and did the Washington think tank political organization number for a little over a decade, mostly connected to the Democratic Leadership Council. And then at the worst possible time in human history, I did a late career uh, move into journalism. Yeah, right as things were going so great in my industry. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) did, did the freelance thing for a while and, you know, fortunately supported by a very productive and generous wife. It's the best kind of wife. But, and, and have a real job now, uh, you know, nearly making as much money as I did 20 years ago. So that's fantastic. Uh, Okay. So listen, we'll talk about all that stuff, uh, in the ancient history later on, but I want to start with Joe Manchin. What, uh, what is he doing? Is this is this hippie punching? Is this super hardball negotiating? Is this just another act in the is BBB really dead or only mostly kind of truly dead? What can you explain it? Well, I can't really explain it because I can't peer into the man's soul. Uh, I suspect yes, there's some hippie punching going on, which you would understand. It and if and the bulwark's been very good about covering this. West Virginia gave Trump his second highest margin in 2020, I think just behind Wyoming. This isn't just a red state. This is a profoundly red state uh, in which Joe Manchin has been able to survive uh, with a little bit of luck, a lot of dedication, and certainly separating himself systematically, routinely, every single moment uh, from a national Democratic Party that has virtually no support in West Virginia anymore. So yeah, uh, I think what a lot of progressives have struggled to understand through this whole saga is that when they attack Joe Manchin, you know, it's 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 like mother's milk to him. It's wonderful. It's great. It's 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 exciting, uh, and it's it's not going to push him in the direction they seem to think. However, at the same time, uh, it is possible that Joe Manchin would like to achieve the best of all possible worlds, which is the hippie punching, the separating himself from the Democratic Party, enjoying the huzzas of Republicans everywhere. I think it's significant that he announced his opposition to BBB on Fox News, but he might also want to get credit for shaping a budget reconciliation bill according to his own specifications, which is sort of a double win. I haven't given up yet. My New York Magazine colleague, Jonathan Chait, really does think that, A, there is some merit in uh, part of what Manchin is saying about the structuring of the Build Back Better package with all the budget tricks and the on-again, off-again programs, and that Manchin may just really be serving notice that he will control whatever legislation that comes out. We've all sort of known that all along, 
but I think may, he may just be making that clear to the whole world. And we could see, particularly now that there's no artificial deadline governing completion of this process. I mean, technically the reconciliation authorization for this bill doesn't run out until next September. You know, there could be uh, another whole phase of this, which could produce actual legislation. So you said that what he does is he is constantly and systematically separating himself from the national party. That's, that's obviously true. Is it the case, however, that if the, the progressive Dems weren't attacking him, then he would have to do something to provoke them into attack. I mean, he does need that, right? Yes, he can't yes. simply get along with the national party because that in itself would be a huge liability, even if they gave him everything they wanted. Yeah, assuming Manchin is interested in possibly running for another term in 2024. Uh, I mean, he's going to be in his late seventies where he'll be 78. <laughs> yeah, he could, which you know now, now doesn't seem to be a disqualifier at all, but we don't know whether he's going to run for another term, but to keep that option open, absolutely. He needs to be treated poorly by the national democratic party in order to maintain viability in, in, in West Virginia. So, I, yeah, if, if the attacks on him didn't exist, uh, he'd have to invent them. And who knows, he may have even passed along some hints to that, uh, you know, in, in that respect. Yeah, I do. I mean, watching this, I do wonder how much of it is real and how much of it is kayfabe. I don't know if you're a wrestling guy, but, you know, kayfabe is the... I've read you talking about that. I, yeah, you know, the, the story. I, I like line. the metaphor better than my standby, which has always been kabuki theater. Yeah. And so I've been I banned I at, from using that term in New York Magazine. I've used it so many times. <laughs> so uh, here, but here's my question about this: is when I look at Mansion, I think to myself, okay, to what end is he doing this? He will be 78 in in 2024. Does he want to run again? I've had some West Virginia readers email me to say, "Look, you don't understand. In West Virginia, every politician wants to die in office." That's their goal. <laughs> you know, they don't they would like to die at the age of 89 as a as a sitting senator. He's definitely going to run again. So then I think to myself, OK, well, can he run as a Dem and win? West Virginia's Republican share of the presidential vote has increased for five consecutive elections, I think, maybe six. Uh, it's just been going up inexorably. And his last victory against a very bland replacement level, I think it was the state attorney general, uh, was a three-point margin in a, yeah. in a great year for Democrats. It was 2018, right. huge wave election for Democrats, and he only ekes it out by three points. It's not even clear to me that if he wanted to run that he could win again, certainly as a Dem. So, Well, look, right now, whether he's going to run or not, and I doubt he's even made up his mind, his leverage is as a Democrat. Right. As part of, you know, the minute Democrats took the Senate back with no margin for error, Joe Manchin and really any senator who chose to be, to, to use their leverage became king of the Senate. And Manchin has exploited that more uh, systematically than anyone else, obviously. So let's just say for the sake of argument, he does what I suggested. He shapes a reconciliation bill to his own liking, uh, does a victory lap around West Virginia about, you know, taking the socialism out of this bill. Uh, and then, you know, he's got, he's still got two or three years before he has to decide whether to run and how to run in 2024. 
you know, there's some talk that he could be, still vote in the Democratic caucus to maintain his leverage, but formally become an independent. Yeah. And he could always flip McConnell between now over, and 20. Right. He could flip and become a Republican between now and 2024. You know, he would want ironclad promises from the GOP that he would not have a primary rival, which normally you would expect given his voting record, uh, which is, you know, at least half Democratic. Uh, so I, he's in the catbird seat. He's been in the catbird seat. He's playing it pretty much the way you'd expect. What I don't really know um, is is how seriously to take the talk that he's personally offended because White House staff have singled him out and, you know, his family's getting hassled on their houseboat. I don't know how genuine all that stuff is because, to be honest, the way he's been behaving is consistent with his own self-interest you know, regardless of any fine sensitivities he might harbor. And, and again, publicizing himself being disrespected by the White House is legal tender in West Virginia anyway, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, is it, if you wanted to take from a Democratic perspective, a silver lining here, the silver lining is he is taking all of the heat that otherwise might go to marginal Democratic senators who yep. are in tough places, right? Well, I frankly, I think he's mostly taking the heat that really ought to be attributed to Democrats who turned the Build Back Better legislation into precisely what Manchin is objecting to, sort of an assortment of on-again, off-again initiatives that aren't really paid for, and for which the party has not made a firm commitment uh, for the next 10 years. And I, I think that's sort of convenient but indecisive way of putting together uh, the most important piece of legislation of the Biden administration has always been questionable. Uh, I've always disliked it. And, um, but, I, but, you know, the great betrayal of Joe Manchin is a much easier uh, sort of story to to explain i'm i'm particularly kind of annoyed by this idea you from some progressives that they were tricked into voting for the infrastructure bill you know based on assurances that mansion and cinema would go along with what more or less what they wanted on build back better uh they wanted to support the the infrastructure bill too <laughs> i mean they like right. it they support right. it they weren't just doing this for the benefit of mansion and cinema now they had it not been for Mansion and Cinema, they might have rolled the infrastructure provisions into an even bigger Bill Back Better bill and passed it all through the Senate. But but again, uh, they didn't have the leverage to do that. So yeah, so Joe Manchin is uh, suffering for a lot of Democratic sins, and let's do not ever forget that uh, this has all been necessary because Republicans are so uniformly bought into Mitch McConnell's obstruction strategy for dealing with anything the Biden administration does. I mean, well, yeah, there's never any question about, well, will Susan Collins flip or will Melania flip? Those are all just assumed no's. Well, and this is most evident on the voting rights uh, front. Right. A big priority for Biden and for Democrats and potentially the more damaging of the two big whiffs uh, in 2021 in terms of how it makes Democratic base voters feel. Not that very long ago, George W. Bush signed a 
25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Not a single Republican senator voted against it, and people like Mitch McConnell were in the Senate then. Now, after that Voting Rights Act was pretty much gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013, one of the main options Democrats are promoting is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would simply put the Voting Rights Act back to where it was when George W. Bush thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And only one Republican senator, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who's already considered a major (laughs) heretic, is willing to support that or any kind of Voting Rights Act you can possibly imagine. So the situation Democrats find themselves in this year, you know, is partly the product of, of not having any margin for error in either house, really. And partly the fact that, you know, with the exception of this sort of rump infrastructure bill, which in part had been negotiated during the Trump administration, uh, there really is no bipartisanship that's even possible. So it's Joe's way or the highway when it comes to major legislation. And that that's the situation that Joe Manchin has exploited so skillfully. So we're going to get to the voting rights stuff in a minute. Can we just spend a minute on the child tax credit? I... I have been shocked at how bad the politics of the child tax credit has turned out for Democrats. I thought to myself, this is going to be a transformational program. Every family in America is going to see the money coming in every month. Uh, it's going to be a huge help to to parents everywhere, you know, all the way from low income to like, you know, middle, middle class. And instead, the child tax credit seems to have become an albatross somehow. You got Manchin reportedly in the Huffington Post telling people behind closed doors, oh, yeah, you know, people are just going to use that to buy drugs. Uh, Sarah Longwell, my partner, does focus groups. Every time she focus groups the child tax credit, people say they hate it because it goes to it, it's just paying people to have kids somehow. It, it's this. <laughs> I don't understand. This seems to have been what the pro-family populist Republicans have been talking about doing for at least a decade. It seems to be making actual uh, differences in the lives of families. (laughs) And yet you can't find five people to put together in a room who are really into the child tax. I don't understand it. Is this a failure of messaging? Is it a failure of politics that just the coalitions aren't there the way it was? What's happening with this? Well, I think multiple things. Yes, I think there's been a failure of messaging. Like you, I'm a little unsure as to why Democrats haven't done more to exploit past conservative support for the basic idea. I mean, most notably Mitt Romney's proposal for an even larger child tax credit than Democrats have supported. And you're right. It's been it was it was the chief policy idea, along with immigration reform, of the reformacons, the the sort of the the group that uh, represented the non-Trump path to a reform Republican Party with a working class base. And um, yeah, I I think at a minimum, Democrats needed to hold Republicans' feet to the fire on that basic idea in terms of public perceptions. You have to remember that this was just placed in, put in place earlier this year. I think when people began to perceive it as something they can count on in the future, it will become a whole lot more popular. Obviously, no 
social policy that involves income redistribution is going to be universally popular. But I, you know, seems to me that the child tax credit, a real one that is enacted as permanent policy, uh, makes more sense politically than, um, you know, say the the big expensive alternative, which is universal pre-K, which supposedly uh, now Manchin thinks is the way to spend most of this money. I, you know, I don't know what to say about Manchin and what he's telling people privately because he has, in the past, been a pretty big supporter of a child tax credit. But he does tend to embrace poison pills like a work requirement, which would make the whole thing immensely more complicated and I mean, probably unpopular. Look, just as a matter of politics, right now, the government is putting money into the bank accounts of yes. families with kids. Yep. And Republicans want that to stop. Yep. Shouldn't that be unpopular? I mean, you know, but just by the political calculus of how how the world has always worked, if you are the party standing up saying, we're going to stop doing this thing for you, you pay a price for it. Yep. And yep. that seems to be absolutely not happening. Am I well, wrong? Am I missing I, something? Again, again, um, because Democrats have not uh, agreed upon a single major policy initiative as the center of Build Back Better, they can't exactly make Republican opposition to the whole package about opposition to this key component. Uh, you know, what is the Build Back Better bill? We don't know. Uh, the, the legislation that passed the House and had been dis- under discussion in the Senate is a whole lot of different things, some of which are popular, some of which are less popular. Uh, but, you know, re- because it was kind of diffuse, Republicans were in a great position to oppose it on grounds of inflation or big government or too much of this, not enough of that. And it did kind of let them off the hook. There's no clear Democratic counter messaging. If let's just say for the sake of argument, you could reach some sort of agreement between Manchin and Senate Democrats, uh, you know, that let's say the child tax credit was going to be the major source of funding, the one big thing this would accomplish, then I think the messaging against Republicans would suddenly become a whole lot more viable. I should well, probably at this point interject, you know, because I say it metronomically all the time that in all these calculations about, you know, what this or that course of action or development will mean for the midterms, uh, I am pretty strongly of the view that it would take a miracle for Democrats to hang on to the House in the 2022 midterms. We can go into the whys of that uh, later if you like, but we're talking margins here, uh, yeah. not, not some sort of miracle that's going to, you know, save the Democratic trifecta uh, if they can just get the right ad put up in swing districts, which is you hear a lot of that kind of talk in the Beltway. And I think it's ludicrous. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, this is, you know, the the, the bad news that uh, Democrats are not managing very well right now with the trifecta. The worst news is that uh the ultimate continuation of American democracy depends on the Democrats getting much better at politics. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can put and, it that uh, way. And so you, you had a great piece, it was last week, right? About yeah. uh, sort of the, the three-year plan to save democracy here. And your point, I, which I think people really need to hear, is that uh, when we talk about 
the midterms. The midterms are a stepping stone to 2024. And the idea is not if you can't save the House and the Senate, then you failed. The House is gone. And I, I don't see any possible way for the House to be saved. I think the Senate is likely to flip as well. Uh, you know, you could have a black swan. You could have catastrophically bad candidates who lose winnable seats for the R's, I suppose. Um, that's that's possible. But the margins will matter for 2024. You know, if if it is a small, small majority for, for the Republicans in the House, that may matter. Um, but can you can you just walk us through at the thirty five thousand foot level what the the three year plan to save democracy would be? Well, uh, you know, my basic premise is that there is a real danger, <laughs> not just to big D Democratic Party, but to small D democracy, uh, if Republicans win back the White House uh, under Donald Trump in twenty twenty four. I mean, for all the reasons you and I have discussed a million times, uh, including the fact that Trump seems to be, with the complicity of the Republican Party, laying the groundwork uh, for a at least a plan B uh, of stealing the presidential results in 2024 via muddying the waters and then, you know, convincing Republican state legislators to appoint electors regardless of what voters want. That's pretty scary. The scariest part of that is that Republican resistance to Trump's past, present, and future schemes uh, seems to have collapsed. And so, you know, just as citizens, Democrats really do owe it to their country uh, to do everything possible to win in 2024. At the same time, uh, any idea that they can hang on to this governing trifecta that sort of kind of made it possible to govern is I, I wouldn't go as far as you is what you just said that it's gone, but it's very unlikely that Democrats can do, can hang on to the house. And again, they're paying a price for the very small margins they came out of 2020 uh, with in the house, which was a big surprise. They were supposed to add to their majority, not watch it melt away. The historical facts are pretty clear. Since 1934, um, the president's party has gained House seats in a midterm exactly twice. Uh, actually, in back-to-back elections, 1998, uh, when Bill Clinton was in the middle of being impeached, which was very unpopular by Republicans who and Democrats were still were also sort of recovering from their 1994 debacle, and they gained a few House seats. That was enough to chase off Newt Gingrich. It was a big shocker. Uh, And then in 2002, the first election after September 11th, less surprisingly, Republicans made a gain uh, among an electorate that was really riveted by the threat of terrorism. The fourth midterm since then, the White House party has done horribly. (laughs) So the odds are, and in those two exceptions, the president's approval rating, job approval rating was over 60%. That ain't going to happen in 2022. So add in the advantages that Republicans are likely to gain, maybe just a few seats net uh, through redistricting, and it really just looks impossible. Um, Having said all of that, uh, the two most recent Democratic presidents, uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, had horrible midterms and got themselves reelected two years after that right, in 1996 and in 2012. So it's entirely possible, and that's what 
Democrats need to focus on, A, because it's their best shot at a, at a victory that matters, and B, because of the consequences of uh, Donald Trump becoming president again, or someone in his image. So how do they do this when they will no longer have a legislative pathway? Because I, I assume that yeah. once Republicans control oh, at yeah, least yeah. the House, uh, the the legislative period of the Biden presidency will be over. Yeah. Well, there are two things they can do. One is, huh, as everyone keeps pointing out, do a better job of messaging. And, and ironically, when you're not trying to put together some insanely complex 10-year budget reconciliation bill with 3,000 provisions, figuring out what you're for is a whole lot easier. I, in my piece, I suggested that they huh, just go full bore into what is known as popularism and make their message whatever the American people seem to really want. Um, it's not like they're going to be put to a legislative test right away uh, to be cynical about it, and they can finally have a clear, unified message. But, and here's the part that's controversial, and I got beat up on Twitter quite a bit for it, uh, in looking at what Democrats, how they allocate resources in 2022, you know, instead of fighting over marginal House seats that they are going to lose scientifically, uh, they might want to put more resources into these races that may determine what happens to the election itself in 2024. Certainly, Donald Trump is focused on those states that he narrowly lost, on purging any Republican elected officials who stood in the way of overturning the election results. And Democrats need to think about those same races. I mean, just to, to give you one example, it may matter a whole lot more to the future of the Democratic Party uh, and to the country. You know, who wins the Secretary of State's race in Georgia than uh, you know who wins some marginal House race in Arizona or California? So, that, or, or better, or more importantly, in a state that's not even competitive. I mean. I really made some people mad by saying this. You know, it may not matter a great deal to the future of the country who is governor of New York uh, after 2022, but it may matter a whole lot more who controls the election machinery in those very close states that Trump contested in 2020. Well, and here you have the, just a real asymmetry of energy, right? I mean, the the Trumpists are all super duper excited about the Secretary of State race in Georgia. And uh, this is one of the things you say is that the Democrats need to focus on on talking about democracy. And I I tend to agree with this, except for the the problem being that the only people who seem really excited about the idea of democracy are the people who would like to overturn it. Those people are really energized by talking about democracy. This is, you know, well, the, the, the Harry Hinton did a, a poll on this a couple of weeks ago. You know, the single best indicator of who is energized about 2022 are people who believe that Donald Trump is the rightly elected president of the United States. Yeah, that's a this is a problem, isn't it? And not, not just well, like they're, a they're political problem. Right. This is a cultural problem. Absolutely. And again, it's difficult to sort out if you look at those the overwhelming majority of Republicans who say that, uh, whether they really believe the election fraud allegations, which uh, for which there's virtually no empirical evidence, or if uh, what they really are are people who think no Democratic president could ever be 
legitimate because of socialism and wokeness and, you know, they're bringing in illegal immigrants to overwhelm us. And, you know, I don't know if you remember how clearly you remember the theory of constitutional conservatism, uh, <laughs> one of those outcrops of uh, the Tea Party movement long before Trump came along. And if you really dug down into what people like Michelle Bachman meant by that or Jim DeMent, it was that there's an eternal governing order that the founders who are divinely inspired put into place and any public policies that violate that divinely established governing order are, you know, ex post facto illegitimate. There cannot be a socialist president who is legitimate. That that's There's a lot of that thing. You scratch a lot of these people who say they are worried about democracy because of voter fraud. And what they really mean is my way or the highway. Our public policies are the only legitimate American patriotic public policies. And at the same time, by the way, having that attitude means you're more likely to believe that this that your opponents, these tyrants who want to take away your guns and kill all the babies, you know, are, are, are capable and certainly motivated to steal elections too. So it's a horrible circular sort of thing. Having said all that, these people are pre-motivated. Uh, nothing Democrats do or don't do is going to change that at all. The question is whether Democrats sort of accept this idea that for everyone else, democracy is a boring process issue or instead begin talking about it in a serious way, which, among other things, might energize Democrats, not just in the midterms, but in 2024, which Democrats desperately need to do. Uh, if, you, if you look at what happened in uh, 2021 in New Jersey and Virginia, I don't buy a lot of the conventional wisdom that a bunch of swing voters upset about critical race theory, you know, flip uh, boosted Republicans in those states. If you look at the composition of the electorate, there was a massive fall off in young voter participation. Huge, gigantic, about half what you'd expect. And these are precisely the kind of voters who tend to be disappointed by what little Democrats have accomplished in Washington and are probably most sensitive to the threat to democracy if Democrats discuss that with them every day. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in talking about it, A, because it is the biggest threat to our country, and B, because you can't win on issues you don't raise. So the, the Biden administration's theory of the case seems to have been we're going to look the other way on all of the democracy stuff. We're going yep. to pretend that the insurrection didn't happen. We're going to pretend that Donald Trump was never here. And we're going to we're going to move everyone back to normal. We're going to talk about kitchen table issues. We're going to do infrastructure. We're going to pursue bipartisanship like it's the damn white whale because people voters want to see that we can work together with the other party. We're going to try to make a concrete difference in their lives by passing legislation. And that has gotten to him to, what, a 46% approval rating, 44% approval rating. Yep. When you look at that, I mean, that that is popularism, basically, right? I mean, Biden tried to do things that were popular. That hasn't worked. And with all of the, the baked-in geographic advantages that the Republicans get from the Electoral College and the Senate, should the Democrats instead have spent their energy on trying to challenge that? Add D.C. as a state, try to end gerrymandering, reform the Electoral College, release the Electoral Count Act. I mean, it, 
I don't know. This is this is the big, you know, I mean, the big divide was always do you do you try to win over the center by going back to something like normal politics or do you try to fix the conditions which make minority rule possible? No, I I understand. And I've kind of gone back and forth on those questions myself. Uh, But you know what? In the end, it didn't much matter to the extent that Republicans have been able to prevent the enactment of, with a little help from Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, been able to thwart even a popular democratic agenda. Uh, there's just no path I could see to which the more radical steps that might have worked uh, could be enacted. Um, they'd either require a constitutional amendment or at a minimum uh, a way of getting around the Senate filibuster. And as we've seen, it just ain't happening. You know, so in terms of popularism failing, I mean, you know, some Biden initiatives are more popular than others. And again, the party never did focus on any one or two particularly popular initiatives. They were for all of it. And, I, you know, I, I, I think one problem is that people don't can never seem to grasp that the sum of the whole is not the same, you know, as the sum of the parts is not the same as the whole when it comes to a big, complicated initiative Uh, You can take the individual provisions of Build Back Better, and most of them have plurality support, not all, but it adds up to big government, socialism, inflation, all these things, because people, voters do not think that way. Um, They do not rationally look at the components of a great, big, huge, highly symbolic initiative and, and insist on their own consistency. So, you got to simplify it enough that people really understand what's most important to you. <clears throat> and I do think Democrats could have a more popular agenda that is more clearly conveyable. But, you know, the, the, you know, the big democracy reforms that you mentioned, uh, there's just no way it was going to happen. Um, and certainly bipartisanship cannot happen without Republican support. And if you spend too much time talking about your desire to do things that you cannot, in fact, do, then you disappoint people, particularly in your own party. And that's part of what we're seeing right now in terms of Biden's approval rating and and where we stand going into the midterms. There are a lot of disappointed Democrats whose expectations have been irrationally raised. So let me ask you about that, though, because I wonder if that is true for Democrats, but not true for Republicans. Uh, so you look at, you know, what is the first year of Biden's administration look like? It has looked like a big fight over uh, the American Rescue Plan, followed by uh, a fiasco in Afghanistan, followed by a big fight over infrastructure, followed by a big fight over BBB. Right. So you, these are four distinct policy level outcomes, which all took forever, all of which were incredibly messy because doing things in the real world is messy. And if you are a casual news observer, maybe it just looks to you like, well, the Biden administration, the Democrats ain't doing nothing. Right. But on the, what had, what was the first year of the Trump administration? None of us can tell because every 48 hours, it was another gigantic extinction level event. There was a tax cut somewhere in there. 
Yep. A tax cut happened. And everything else was a series of, uh, oh, he's tweeting about nuking the North Koreans. Oh, he's lying about his crowd size. Or, you know, it was it was a string of it was the chaos monkeys. And yep. yet that he does not seem to have ever paid a price with Republican voters for that because well, that's what they wanted. Exactly. And well, part of it is uh, Republicans do not think much in terms of public policy achievements <laughs> uh, to which they are reflexively opposed. You know, it's, they're, they're, it's, it's no accident that Republicans during the Trump administration could not come up with a coherent health care plan of their own because fundamentally Republicans don't want one. But they didn't even care about the wall being built. No, this I'm is the other, you know, one, one of the, the amazing yeah. things about, about which I think nobody could have, could have predicted in 2016 well, was that come 2020, you'd be able to pull Republicans and say, Hey, guess what? Trump built like, you know, 178 miles of wall uh, or however many miles it was. He didn't build the whole thing. Are you satisfied? Uh, and the truth is like 90% of Republicans were like, hell yeah, we never meant that he'd really build the wall. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> we took him seriously, but not literally. Yeah. Right. Um, that, well, you know, there's a lot of speculation about this and I think you've written some yourself that, Republicans in this polarized environment, Republicans are significantly more likely to be focused on symbolic cultural issues than our Democrats. I mean, <laughs> think about it. We've, we've had this conversation and, and there have been many others about how Democrats are even afraid to go there on cultural issues, partly because they have a deep-seated belief that what really makes people tick is money in the checking account. <laughs> You know, they don't quite know how to cope with cultural issues. So they want to ignore them and shut up about them and hope that voters don't think about them. Republicans do not have that illusion or that problem. Uh, they build partisan solidarity on the basis of the more outrageous, the better statement on the cultural condition of the country. And at the same time, um, their, their meta message in terms of governing, you know, still relies on hostility to big elitist government. And you don't really have to accomplish a whole lot if if your only real governing goal is cleaning out the swamp. I mean, how do you even measure that? So right. I think the two parties operate on the basis of completely different uh, expectations from their bases. Uh, though, again, I think Democrats often... Um, you know, misunderstand the significance of cultural issues on both sides of the barricades, which is why I do worry that, you know, the one event that really might help Democratic turnout in 2022 is the Supreme Court's upcoming uh, reversal, more than likely, of Roe v. Wade. And I'm a little concerned that Democrats are going to say, well, let's don't talk about that. Let's let's talk about money. Because, you know, all these silly superstitions people have about the supernatural order of the universe or, or illusions, and, and let's talk money. It, it's something Democrats are comfortable with, and, you know, I, th I think it's hurting them. So let, let's talk about that. I, when I look at the possibility of Roe being overturned, um, I mean, first of all, there is there's the question of would it be a, a clean overturning, in the meaning that something that... Yeah. Real voters out there can understand. Oh, it has been overturned. Or will the decision be written in such a way as to muddy the waters and make it look like, well, it's just a curtailing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I could see this literally. I could see every single which way of this. 
I could see it as a huge news story for 10 days that then everybody forgets about because it's the summer, right? And then, you know, everybody is back to normal come come September 1 and Labor Day. I could see it as a very helpful issue for Democrats, where suddenly they can hang the Texas SB8 around the neck of every Republican running in every suburban district, and suddenly the, the Republicans are the dog that has caught the car. But I could also see it being a boon to Republicans because then you could hang the, you know, abortion all the way up until the the day of delivery around the neck of uh, of Democrats. Right. Which is also an unpopular position. Um, would, which which one would it be? How, how well, would this play out? Well, I, we don't know for sure. I strongly suspect that the decision will be. In order to approve this Mississippi <laughs> abortion law that's that's being tested, much less the Texas law that's sort of lurking behind it, would require a pretty clear-cut uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade. And I think they're determined to validate these laws. And again, something that I think kind of gets missed is that both the Texas and Mississippi laws have no exceptions for pregnancies produced by rape or incest which is a radically unpopular position, by the way, but one which the right to life movement is, is increasingly embracing. But my guess as to what's going to happen after that decision, I mean, this is the great getting up morning for the uh, anti-abortion movement uh, and the culmination, the successful culmination of its often frustrating relationship with the Republican Party which has, in their view, betrayed them over and over and over again, uh, they're not going to be able to restrain themselves. There is going to be legislate anywhere there is a Republican legislator, anywhere in the country, there will be frantic activity to uh, test the limits of what public opinion can support in the way of outlawing abortions. It's not going to be moderate. It's not going to be shrewd. It's not going to focus on late-term abortions. I think this is, this is the big payoff for these folks, then I think they're going to do everything they can to, in their minds, head off an American Holocaust of legalized abortion. You know, the, the, the days of fencing about it symbolically using focus groups are probably over. Now they can actually pass laws, and I think they will. So having said all that, uh, you know, it's going to help energize Republicans too, but I think that's already happened. Um, and, and the question is whether there's going to be a significant backlash uh, since for the very first time in nearly a half century, women who want to get abortions are going to be stopped from doing so uh, by force of law, by their own government. And that that I think that could have, a, if there's anything that could change the dynamics of 2022, I think that's it. Very interesting. So let, let's say the, the GOP does take back the House. Yep. I mean, we talked briefly about how unpopular impeachment was in 1998. I imagine that you will get the full spectrum of crazy. Oh, yeah. Coming from, right? It isn't going to be Tim Scott and Trey Gowdy in charge. It's going to be Matt Gates and company and Jim Jordan, right? I mean, what is there? Is there political danger for the Republicans here? Or not. I mean, I, I, just, I just imagine, you know, if we had Benghazi and Hillary's emails and all that in the last two years, of the Obama administration. I mean, honestly, I and I'm deadly serious about this. I put the odds at 50 50 that they wind up starting impeachment proceedings against Biden at some point. Oh, yeah. 
you know, you, it's it's really hard to tell what the Republican congressional leadership is going to be thinking in 2023. I mean, for one thing, it's not 100% clear Kevin McCarthy is going to be the speaker. <laughs> and that's true even if Donald Trump doesn't uh, run for it himself. Uh, there, there are potential rivalries in the House. Um, who knows what Mitch McConnell is going to be thinking, and it may depend on whether he's the majority leader or the minority leader. But I think they can probably get through two years of pure obstruction and throwing a lot of dirt around to, you know, help motivate the base. Hearings, uh, committees. Hearings. Right. And you will get the November 3 committee you, that, you, uh, yes, that they have promised. Absolutely. You'll get Benghazi times 15. I, I don't think that's going to be enough to blow themselves up for 2024. I think the bigger factor is Trump's preparations, which will be, a lot more transparent than they were in 2020. I'm one of the people that wrote for, you know, got a reputation as a crank because I spent something like eight months writing about Trump's plans to overturn the election. You and me both, brother. Yeah, I know. And and you wrote the absolute best piece ever on long before it was clear to most people what what's underway for 2024. So I think that will be the primary vulnerability for Republicans heading into 2024. You know, at some point, actually arguing that state legislators should be able to ignore your vote and name whoever they want the presidential winner in their state is not going to be very popular. So there, there is a risk. for. But again, Democrats have got to talk about it or people aren't even going to understand it. Okay, so that's all the modern history and current events that I want to talk about. Uh, because while I have you here, I'm desperate to talk about the past. Oh my god, <laughs> because this is this is where I like to live. Uh, things were better. It was a better time. Um, you came up through Georgia politics, right? You don't you yep. have a law degree from Uga? Uga? Yep, yep. How do they say that? Uga. Uga. Right? Uga. Uga. Uh. Now, Uga um, technically is the dog. Right, right. UGA is what they call the school. I do have a law degree from there and an undergraduate degree from Emory, which is also in Georgia. So, yeah. The Coke School, the University of Coca-Cola. Absolutely. Uh, So you you came up through Georgia governors, right? Um, Yep, yep. Sam Nunn, Democratic Leadership Council. I think what people who are under the age of 40 may not remember that once upon a time, the future of American politics looked very different. So you have... Jimmy Carter, who wins this amazing victory, we were talking a little bit before the show about this, in 1976, and shows the power of a Southern Democrat. And then Reagan comes, and we have the Reagan years, and the the sort of northeastern part of the Democratic Party takes over. And things get really bad, uh, culminating in, in the Dukakis loss to the first Bush. And after that, Bill Clinton sets up the third way. And the idea is you can take a conservative Southern Democrat. And if you do that, it opens up an entire world of possibilities for you. And it looked like this should be the future. And then it stopped being the future. <laughs> what happened? Is well, is it a, is it the polarizing and sorting of the electorate? Is it a... I guess that's my question. Is what happened there a story about the elites moving or is it a story about voters moving? I think more the latter. You know, the realignment 
which was ideological, you know, the great sorting out, some people call it, of people left of center moving into the Democratic Party, people right of center moving into the Republican Party, was still just really getting underway when and during my period growing up in politics. Um, and, you know, eventually that realignment eliminated the basis for the Democratic Southern Democratic politics I had grown up with, in which you maintained by hook or by crook a significant 40%, let's say, of white voters, and you complemented it with 90% of black voters. That was sort of the formula in Georgia. Well, that 40% is now down to about 20, 25, or, or had been during the period of Republican ascendancy in the South. So the old formula didn't work. Um, you know, and at the same time, um, the Democratic Party grew in parts of the country which had had a lot of moderate Republicans, like in New England and Pacific Northwest and parts of the Midwest. So, um, yeah, everything changed. Um, but at the same time as this sorting out occurred, you had a radical reduction in the number of genuine swing voters, uh, people who really were up for the grabs. I would say as recently as 1996, swing voters accounted for a quarter of the electorate. When Bill Clinton was winning his re-election battle, that's down to probably 10%, maybe lower now. Uh, it's been gradual, but it's been definite. So the old DLC formula, if you want to put it that way, of hanging on to a sufficient number of moderate to conservative Democrats um, and expecting progressive Democrats and certainly voters of color uh, to go along with uh, candidates more conservative than they would normally want, that whole calculation is sort of broken down. Um, and as a result, uh, I think there's more unity in the Democratic Party now than I've ever seen. Uh, and interestingly enough, that's most evident in the South, in which the new symbol of the Democratic Party is not somebody like um, Zell Miller or, you know, Lord knows some of the more conservative Democrats. Uh, it's Stacey Abrams, who has absolutely no opposition as the gubernatorial candidate in Georgia in 2022 and has the most united Democratic Party I've ever seen. So. Uh, there's a new formula. Um, that doesn't mean they aren't, there aren't still factions uh, in the party. Uh, there's this argument over um, economic versus cultural issues that I've alluded to two or three times. That's still around. That's still real. Um, and, I, you know, but it's, we're, we're in a very competitive situation, even in the South right now. And that's, that's a good thing. I, what I used to explain to my progressive friends back in the DLC days when they'd say, you know, how can you possibly support these more conservative candidates? And I would say, you need to understand that in the Deep South, politics is a blood sport. Uh, at stake isn't which version of what popular program you're going to have. It's, are we going to have public schools? <laughs> are we going to have a right to vote? It's very fundamental and very vicious uh, Southern politics was even back then. And that hasn't changed at all. But I think there is a sort of realism that comes out of that tradition, pragmatism, whatever you want to call it, 
and an openness to new approaches that that I do think is part of the, you know, the the new Democrat or DLC heritage, and it it does live on. Um, and I, you know, I'm not embarrassed about it at all, even though I don't think that same approach would work now. It wouldn't work now, but we'd be better off if it would, wouldn't we? I mean, yeah, it, it does maybe. seem like yeah. that, it, that was a better time, meaning that because you had more swing voters, right? A larger number of swing voters means that you have to have then by definition, less polarization of the two major parties and less polarization means That's that true. you wind up with less extreme candidates. But, and, and more than that, you wind up with a system where everybody feels like they can win. They can get them again next time. Right. Well, we lost this election. Well, we'll get them next time. And we have one party that no longer believes that. Right. Because they believe they are headed towards permanent minority status. And that has led them to the place where they feel like they have to win at all costs. And even if it means overturning a democratic election, that's a real problem. Yeah, I I would remind, and you know this, uh, just because we didn't have as much partisan polarization 30 and 50 and 60 years ago, we had plenty of ideological polarization. Sure. (laughs) You just had, you had genuinely a lot of moderate to liberal Republicans and moderate to conservative Democrats. Well, I mean, just look at the first revolutionary year of the Reagan administration. Democrats controlled the House. (laughs) This was the first time uh, that anybody figured out how to use budget reconciliation to do great, big, huge things. Reagan's budget and tax bills in 1981 were the largest pieces of legislation in American history, bigger than the New Deal stuff. They passed on, you know, like three votes in the House. And Reagan never had a Republican majority to work with in the House. So it's worse, yes, in terms of the national psychology when ideological polarization becomes partisan polarization, too. Um, The only thing that potentially is good about it is that you have much more accountable national parties now, or should, and um, and there really should be a way to hold leaders of the two parties more accountable to their own base, but also to those remaining swing voters. So, you know, I sometimes in periods of gridlock, I feel like if we could just let one party, the other, win big once <laughs> and actually govern, maybe we could sort out what we want as a people, which we weren't very good at in those halcyon days of bipartisanship, truth be told, there was really too much compromise. But on the other hand, that leads to these insanely high stake elections we have now. And the particularly terrifying prospect of an election in 2024, in which an entire national political party has adopted the Trump slogan of, I can't lose unless it's rigged. Yeah. Which is uh, terrifying. Well, it is terrifying. And what's more terrifying about it is that uh, there are legal ways to overturn a free and fair election. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think what people don't quite understand is, you know, that the Republicans wouldn't necessarily have to break the law, right? You just use the Electoral Count Act as it is now. And you have a bunch of secretary of states executing their legal authority and, uh, you know, our state legislatures here and there. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're in a very dark, dark place. Well, even even the to me, and crazy radical claim that state legislators can just choose whoever the hell they want to be presidential electors 
does have a basis in the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. radical interpretation of the Constitution, and it would be wildly unpopular if it happened. But it's, no, you're right. Getting control of the levers of power uh, in key states uh, in an election that is close enough uh, that you can sort of claim small changes would make big differences in the outcome, which is probably going to be the case in 2024. And yeah, you're a hop, skip, and a uh, jump away from an authoritarian overturning of an election, uh, which we've never really had in this country, I, you know, with the arguable exception of 1876. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of my themes that I bang on about is that uh, if you are in a place where 45% of the country is eager to go and choose that, then you've already lost, right? I mean, the, 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 the politics is downstream culture and the problem is not the politicians, the problem is the people. But uh, you know what? Here, hold on. Charlie never ends on a down note like that. Charlie's a pro. Give me something good to look forward to in the new year. Tell me one good thing that's going to happen in 2022, Ed. Uh, well, I wish I, I could say something confident about it. Okay. Okay. You know, maybe we're going to go through a COVID wave without a lot of people dying. And maybe we can regain some sort of national sense of how to manage public health and pandemics. And if that's the case, that has positive implications for our politics, for our economy, and really for our sense of who we are as a people. I know that's not a prediction, that's a hope. But you know, once we get through this next insane period of the Omicron variant, uh, there may be some serious light at the end of the tunnel. And just as COVID-19 had um, unbelievably pervasive negative effects on, on things we're just now beginning to understand, right? It's possible that an end of the pandemic or uh, the pandemic becoming something we can live with could have equally profound positive effects in every area. At least I hope so. As St. John Paul the Great said, hope must always have the last word. Ed Kilgore, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you have a wonderful holiday, a happy new year. And uh, we'll be back again tomorrow to do this all over again.